quite a story. We're continuing in our series in Exodus, and uh, today's title of the message is Discouraged and Disheartened, as you, can, as you could tell from the reading. And the theme for today, if you get nothing else, take this home. The foulest of circumstances give God opportunity to display the majesty of His grace. And before I go any further, I just want to turn again to our Father. Our Heavenly Father, You are so great, as we just sang. You're so mighty, so holy, so righteous, so loving. Your majesty reaches to the heavens, and yet You sent Jesus in weakness and in frailty, in humility, to this dirty, sin-filled, evil, unfriendly, unkind world to save us, the foulest of creatures. We were sinful people who rebelled against You, but through the grace of Jesus' blood, You have washed us clean. We are saved, even though and we continue to fail you because we are weak and we're prone to doubt and despair. And that's where we find ourselves often, Father. If we're honest, we are discouraged and disheartened. We pray to you. We want to, we want to do your will. We long to see your power, and yet our friends are still suffering with terminal illness or never-ending pain. Our relationships are still broken and fractured. Our hearts are still prone to sin and doubt. Our lives are still filled with stress and worry. Our world is still full of hate and war, and we wonder, how long, Lord? How long do we have to wait until all things are made new? How long until Jesus will return? And we cry out, I believe, only help my unbelief. So Lord, help us in our doubt and our discouragement. Give us strength to be patient. We want everything to be instant, perfect, and we have very little tolerance for slow and steady progress or imperfection. May your Holy Spirit instill the heart of Jesus in us, the heart that is loving and long-suffering and patient and kind, gracious and forgiving. And as we wait for your plan to unfold, both here and around the world, in the Middle East especially, as we hear about the horrible things done to innocent Israeli lives, we pray for your justice and righteousness to be done, for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we watch economies inflate all around the world at an ever-increasing speed, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. As we struggle in our everyday relationships that are impacted by sin and failure, we pray, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. As we're tempted by sin and doubt and fear and pride, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we pray all this because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And so as we turn to your timeless word this morning, please quiet our hearts that we may be still and know that you are God that you will be exalted among the nations, that you will be exalted in the earth and cause us to believe that you, the Lord of hosts, are with us and that the Almighty God is our fortress. Enlighten our hearts that we may know the hope to which you've called us and the immeasurable riches that you have granted us in Christ and the greatness of your power to us who believe. May we be confident that you, Jesus, are the head of the church and that you will never leave us or forsake us. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen. All right, so the people are in a predicament in Exodus chapter 5. And here's what we learned about the story thus far. In chapter 4, Moses and Aaron speak to the people and they perform uh, miraculous signs in front of the people. Uh, the people believe the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses because they saw Moses turn a staff into a serpent, right? And they believe that God had visited his people and that God saw them in their horrible situation and that God had Moses and Aaron there to deliver them. And in response, they bowed their heads and worshipped, and I'm sure that was an incredible moment. The realization that God was not absent 
and that God had a plan and that God loved them as the people, prompted them to worship him as the I am. And their circumstances hadn't changed yet, though. Their muscles still ached from the slave labor they were under, they, but they worshiped God. And then, it doesn't say, but I imagine that they went home. At the end of chapter 4, they slept with the hope of salvation on their minds and went back to work the next day. And afterward, Moses and Aaron, confident that everything was going according to plan, went to Pharaoh and he spoke to them. And as we begin to read chapter 5, verse 1, there's this element of hope and joy and anticipation. Yes, God had visited his people and they believed the word of the Lord. And God had been worshipped. And now Moses and Aaron, in obedience to God, are confronting Pharaoh. Here we go, God is going to deliver his people. It's going to be awesome, right? And I'm sure the Israelites felt the same way. God promised to deliver them, and Moses and Aaron are confidently walking into the presence of Pharaoh, assuming that that's all is going to go according to plan. And then you get to 5, verse 2. And what does Pharaoh do? He says, no. <laughs> he says, who is the Lord that I should listen to him and let you go? I don't know this Lord of whom you're speaking, and I most certainly am not going to let you go. And Pharaoh quickly escalates this scene into a cosmic power struggle, which, which God is going to win, right? Pharaoh or Yahweh? And then Pharaoh continues and he says, why do you take these people away from their work? In fact, you two are giving grand thoughts of being free to these people, and so they're not working as hard. They think they can get away with some rest, not over my dead body, go back to work. Moses and Aaron, that goes for you too, verse 4. And that would be bad enough. Disappointing enough if that was all that Pharaoh had said and did. But Pharaoh didn't stop there. He figured that he must teach the people a lesson. He must not allow them any opportunity for hope. He must break their spirits and discourage their hearts and make them so busy that they can't possibly even dream of escape. And he's going to occupy their time so much so that they would, have, would have not have any time left to worship God or to even think of him. The only God that would be on their minds would be Pharaoh, and he wanted them to fear him. And so the Pharaoh commands that they be given more work to do, verse 7. The taskmasters are told to give no mercy. The slaves were not even to be given straw to make bricks with. Instead, they would have to go out by themselves or send their women and children out into the fields to gather it, and the Hebrews had to keep up the same pace as they were before. They were not allowed to slack up a bit. They were to make the same number of bricks as they were before. You know how difficult that would have been? You've got to put yourself in there. That would be an impossible demand. A demand that would ultimately demoralize and stress the people to the breaking point because they would have to work around the clock, all of them, to accomplish this task. Verse 11 to 14 are frustrating verses. Put yourself in this impossible situation. On top of the extra work, on top of the necessity for them to adjust and pull all these, kind, all these workers together and delegate who to send for straw and who to stay on the brick kilns, the foremen were beaten because the production was lagging behind. They were just taking a beating for something that they could not control. It was unjust. They were being abused and, and pushed to the breaking point. So verse 15, the foreman went to Pharaoh and they brought their complaint to him. Perhaps they didn't know that the command to get their own straw had, had come from Pharaoh himself, for they say, the fault is with your own people. 
In other words, it's not our fault that we cannot possibly get uh, all this straw on our own, right? We can't do all this work. Your taskmasters are requiring more than is humanly possible. But Pharaoh replies, you are idle. You are idle. The Net Bible puts it this way. He says, you are slackers. (laughs) Slackers. The NIV says, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. Pharaoh accuses the Israelites of being lazy. Was that true? (laughs) I don't think so. Fueled by this accusation, Pharaoh repeats his command. He says, now go to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must maintain the same number of bricks. Verse 18. And the foreman saw that they were in trouble. Verse 20. This is the understatement of this whole passage. These foremen, the children of Israel, were in deep trouble, and they knew it because look at how they turned and accused Moses and Aaron in verse 21. You have put a sword in their hands to kill us. In other words, you have now given them a reason to kill us and a means by which to kill us. They're going to work us to death. If not, they will whip us to death, one or the other. We're going to be dead. And the Lord is going to judge you for it. And behind that statement, do you see what's going on? They lost faith that God would deliver and that Moses was telling the truth. Moses, you're wrong. This just proves it. Instead of delivering us, they are going to kill us. God is going to judge you. Instead of making things better, you have made them worse. You made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. He can't stand the sight or the smell of us. He abhors us now and he hates us now. And it's all your fault, Moses. Man, being in that situation, first as an Israelite foreman, what do you do? You know that your countrymen are under your authority and are going to suffer and possibly die because of this crazy edict, and yet you are powerless to do anything about it. And they are complaining to you, and they are bringing their stories of their pain and their abuse to you, and they are looking to you for answers and solutions. And the stress of the situation, we keep any of us awake at night, working into the wee hours of the morning for a plan, right? These fathers and mothers and children are people you know by name, and they have nothing to look forward to but worse and worse conditions. They are suffering even worse than before, and you are being beaten because of it. And the only one to blame, in your mind, is, you bet, Moses, right? Because he went in to Pharaoh. And this is supposed to be a man of God Right? who said he was called by God to deliver the people and to shepherd them into the promised land. And what kind of shepherd is he? All he has accomplished is to make matters worse. He doesn't care about us at all. He just put a sword in the hand of Pharaoh to kill us. And the people believed Moses and were worshiping God one moment, and then Moses was obedient to do what God called him to do as the one whom God appointed to be their leader, but the outcome was not what Moses or the people thought it would be, and so the human response was they were angry and accused Moses of trying to kill them. What would you have done in that situation? Tough, eh? And then I want you to think of Moses. God spoke to him, told him that he was sending him to deliver the nation. Moses didn't even want to go in the first place, right? But God didn't give him a choice. He sent him. And so Moses reluctantly yet obediently went. He performed the signs and spoke the words of God, and the people believed, and they worshiped God. But then Moses obediently went into Pharaoh, and immediately Pharaoh made the conditions ten times worse for the people. And the stress on Moses must have been 
enormous. Think about that. He left his in-laws and his livelihood, his peace and quiet, his home of 40 years, and he came to this God-forsaken Egypt on a mission that he didn't want to go on. And Moses had told God that Pharaoh wouldn't listen to him, and he was right. And now everything got worse. And the people got angry at Moses because they had to work even harder than before. Pharaoh was taking advantage of the people, abusing them, and it was only going to get worse and worse. And Moses heard their complaints. He saw their pain. He sympathized with their disillusionment and disbelief. And Moses started to falter as well. For both the people and for Moses, this was completely demoralizing. Their hope in God had been dashed. The Israelites, confident in Moses, was completely shaken. They were stretched to the breaking point physically, emotionally, and spiritually. As Proverbs puts it, Hope deferred or hope drawn out or hope prolonged makes the heart sick. And Moses was put to the breaking point as well. His confidence in God was shaken too. Nothing seemed to be going according to plan because look at how Moses responds to God. And this is our second point in our outline, the complaint of Moses. Verse 22. First question, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? So Moses throws the accusation at God. You have done evil to this people. Notice Moses now blames God for what Pharaoh did. Second question, why did you ever send me here? Why did you send me? And why did I even come here in the first place? God, you have failed and I have failed. You ever cried out to God like that? In the middle of a storm, it's only human to see it this way from our own vantage point. Look at how Moses explains his frustration and disappointment. Verse 23, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Lord, I've been obedient to say and to do what you told me to say and do, but nothing has gone right. You, Lord, have not kept up your end of the bargain. Never been there. I have, to be honest, numerous times in my life. Years ago, we went where God asked us to go, and when we were confronted with opposition and things not going as we thought that they would and negative consequences for ourselves and the people that we loved, we were discouraged and demoralized and depressed, much like Moses was. And there have been times in the past when we were obedient to do what God has called us to, and it didn't go as we expected it would. And we have turned to the Lord and said, Why have you done this? Right? Why did you ever send us? All we have done is what you've asked us to do, and it has only gotten worse. And the situation that Moses and the people found themselves in was horribly discouraging. And yet, were the people right? Was, was this Moses' fault? No. And was Moses right? Was it God's fault? No. I've come to learn through my 25 years of ministry that if you are in leadership position, the opposition doesn't mean that you're doing things wrong. Many times, most of the time, it means that you're doing things exactly the way God wants you to do it, but he wants you to trust him. And he wants the people under you to trust him. He wants everyone involved to trust him, <laughs> to rest in his trustworthiness. God wants to display his power and his grace and his miraculous mercy in astounding ways in the midst of disappointment and discouragement. You see, the opposition and misunderstandings and disappointments are what God uses for his glory and for our good. And I've come to learn that when you are not in a position of leadership, it, it can be a difficult place. The actions of 
A leader may appear to do more harm than good, like in the case of Moses. Their actions may cause more negative consequences than positive in the moment. People get upset, complain, rightfully so, because the conditions seem to have gotten worse. But again, God was asking the people to trust him, to trust that he had sent Moses to be their leader and do exactly what Moses had done, even though the evil and suffering and pain was a result. That was God's plan. It always had been. It hadn't changed. And God wanted to display his power and grace and mercy in astounding ways, and the suffering, pain, and disappointment were what God used for his glory and for the good of the people of Israel. Why don't you think about that for a minute? As difficult as that truth may sound, it's the one thing that this passage can help us to understand. Because look at how God responded to Moses in this, in this dark moment, how God responded to the children of Israel as well with his assurance. Chapter 6, he says, Now you will see what I will do. And God says to Moses and to Israel, Hey, trust me. This is part of the plan. As painful as it is, as unjust as it has become, as horrible as these circumstances have developed, as exhausted and discouraged as you are, trust me. These are the circumstances under which I want to show you what I am capable of. Get that? Now I will do what I'm going to do. These are the circumstances under which I want to show you what I am capable of because now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. The foulest of circumstances give God opportunity to display the majesty of his grace. Back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18 to 20, God told Moses this. He said, You and the elders of Israel will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Moses did this. He was obedient. Unfortunately, Pharaoh's actions discouraged Moses and the people. But were Pharaoh's ruthless actions a surprise to God? No. Listen to what God said immediately after that in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. God said, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and after that he will let you go. Did you catch that? God knew that Pharaoh was going to buck against God and Moses. And God knew that Pharaoh would be in opposition to the will of God. And so God reminded Moses of what he had already told him back chapters before. God said that Pharaoh would only be compelled to send them away with a strong hand, a hand that was stronger than his own. And that hand be God's hand. And so God reminded Moses of the promise. He promised again to stretch out his own hand, the hand of Almighty I Am. And then Pharaoh would not only send them out of Egypt, he would drive them out of Egypt. And now from verse 2 to 5, God graciously and confidently spoke reassuring words to Moses as the leader of the people. And then from verses 6 to 8, God mercifully spoke reassuring words to the people. First, God's reassurance to Moses. Verse 2 to 5, he says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Yahweh begins and ends his promise with the declaration of his name. Verse 2, verse 8. And why is that important? Because of the simple fact that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by, uh, given among men by which we must be saved. Yahweh is salvation. And you know what the name Jesus means? It means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And, and Yahweh continues, verse 3. 
He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So what does God mean here? This is certainly not the first time in the Bible that the Lord, Yahweh, is used. In fact, God referred to himself as Yahweh way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, when he was talking to Abraham. God said, I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land that I possess. So why is, this, why is there this parent apparent contradiction. What does God mean here in verse 3? Well, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, the Lord, or Yahweh, appeared to Abraham and he said this, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Your kids sang it last Christmas. Remember that song? Yeah. And so here, Yahweh revealed himself to Abraham as God Almighty. And then he went on to make a covenant with Abraham and that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And God revealed himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty, and displayed his power and his might to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the patriarchs understood the significance of the name El Shaddai, God Almighty. However, though they knew his name, Yahweh, they did not understand the full significance of his name. And so in Genesis, Yahweh revealed himself as God Almighty. But now, in Exodus, God Almighty is revealing himself as Yahweh, the self-existent one. In other words, as God Almighty delivered Israel from Egypt, displaying his power and his majesty over all the false gods of Egypt, he is revealing that he alone is God. He alone is the self-existent God of the universe. He alone is Yahweh, not the pipsqueak Pharaoh. Yahweh is all-sufficient precisely because he is God Almighty. And this self-existent Yahweh, the Almighty God of the patriarchs, established a covenant with them as a people to give them the land of Canaan, and Yahweh was about to make good on that promise. Verse 4. Moreover, Yahweh, the personal name of God, heard the groanings of the people, and he remembered his covenant. And the one and only self-existent God of the universe is not only God Almighty, he is also personal and compassionate God who acts for his people. And so then he transitions to assurance for the people, verse 6 to 8. And look at what God says here. He introduces his promise to the people by declaring his name again. I am Yahweh. And then God reveals all the ways in which he will act on behalf of his people. And I want you to notice how the foulest of circumstances gives God opportunity to display the majesty of his grace. And if you have your Bibles, underline these phrases. I am Yahweh. Verse 6, I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with acts of judgment. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you will know that I am your God. I will bring you, verse 8, into the land that I swore to give you. I will give it to you as a possession. And then God ends these promises again with, I am Yahweh. You see that each action begins with, I will. I will bring you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you. I will give you a possession. The follows of circumstances gives God opportunity to display the majesty of his gracious will. The I am promises that I will. You'd hope that the reassurance of the Almighty God that he is the self-existent one who remembers his covenant with the children of Israel, has heard them and remembered them and now promised again that he will bring them out and deliver them and redeem them and take them to be his people and will be their God and will give them the land, that all of this would reassure the people and calm their fear and renew their hope. 
but it didn't. Look at verse 9. They did not listen to Moses. Their spirits were broken. They were discouraged and they were disheartened. They were not in the mood to listen to Moses blab around again about God's promises. They had no capacity to hope that things would change. Their bodies were fatigued by the harsh slavery. They had no strength left in themselves. They had no desire to trust in the God who had just let them down. I find that extremely sad, but also characteristic of human nature. We are weak and we are prone to doubt and discouragement. In fact, look at what Moses says next. In, in verse 10 and 11, chapter 6, God told Moses to go back to Pharaoh and demand that he let the people go. In other words, God is telling Moses to stick to the plan and it is not altered. God is going to deliver the people whether the circumstances look like it right now or not. In verse 12, Moses gives another excuse. Remember all of his excuses a few chapters earlier, right? He gives another one. Pretty legitimate one, actually. People themselves haven't listened to me, God, so why would Pharaoh listen to me? In verse 13, God charges Moses and Aaron to not lose heart, but to do what he asked them to do, regardless of what was happening in the moment. In other words, God is saying, Moses, you've got to trust me. The people will believe in me in time. Pharaoh will submit to me in time. I will deliver the people out of bondage in time. Trust me, obey me, and wait for me. Hold that thought. This tension between the incredible disappointment that Moses and the people were feeling and yet God's continued plea to trust him. Hold that for a minute. Verse 10 to 13 are repeated in verse 26 to 30. And in the middle, I didn't read it this morning, is a genealogy of Moses and Aaron. It's a little strange, don't you think? Especially in light of the despondent and discouraging place that we're in in the story, why, why does God have Moses write a genealogy, right? Smack dab in the middle of that. I want you to skip down to verse 26 and 27. It says, These are the Moses and Aaron to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about, about bringing the people out of Egypt, this Moses, and this Aaron. So the reason for this genealogy and for the three emphatic statements that God spoke this to this particular Moses and Aaron is this. God himself had chosen Moses and Aaron to be his spokesmen. Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi. That's what this is explaining. And so they were Levites. The Levites were the priestly line. The priests acted as mediators between God and man. They were spokesmen for God to the people, and they were spokesmen for the people to God. This was the duty of the Levites, and thus it was the duty of Moses and Aaron. They were fulfilling their God-given responsibility. And this is important information for the reader to know. It also adds an element of hope in the middle of this gloomy passage, because although nothing seemed to be going right, and Pharaoh had the upper hand, and God didn't do anything yet, and the people found themselves in worsening circumstances, Moses was discouraged and full of doubt. These were the men God called to be his spokesmen. And this was the exact time that God decided to intervene. And Moses and Aaron were doing exactly what God called them to do. And though everyone was discouraged and struggling, God was not phased. He had not changed the plan from all the way back at the beginning of the genealogy, and he was going to do what he said he would do. And these follows of circumstances gave God opportunity to display the majesty of his grace because look at this. The genealogy points out that Moses and Aaron were just simply men. 
flawed and sinful humans who were called by God to do a task that was way, way beyond them. A task that required trust and obedience. But they were not perfect at it. Not at all. In fact, Moses was as flawed as they came. He, remember, he was a murderer, a runaway, full of excuses, disobedient, full of doubt, unwilling. If those qualities were on a resume, we would definitely never choose that man to be our shepherd, would we? <laughs> but God chose Moses. As flawed and as sinful as he was, with as many failures as he had and would have in the future, to speak his words to the people and to shepherd them through the wilderness. Why did God choose them? So that he could display his power and majesty through their weakness and failure. As 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay so that the excellency of the power would be of God and not of us. Back in verse 13, God had charged Moses and Aaron to not lose heart, but to do what he asked them to do regardless of what was happening in the moment. And verse 26 and 27 were intended to encourage the children of Israel. Moses and Aaron were chosen by Yahweh from their own covenant people to lead them according to the plan that Yahweh had outlined. And thus the people were to not lose heart either. Because according to God's will, they would be delivered from these terrible circumstances by God's own hand, working through the weak and frail vessels of Moses and Aaron. Now, there's a lot we can take away from this passage today. I didn't necessarily know where to begin when I started, but a couple things. There may be some here today in this room who have never placed your faith in Jesus, the God who saves. You may have never admitted it, but you know that you were like the Israelites, in bondage to your sin and rebellion. Your heart is sinful and foul. You know that you are powerless to save yourself, and that is why you are here today, because you are searching for some way out of your predicament. And if this describes you, then I encourage you to trust in Jesus today. Jesus is the grace of God. He is God's gift to you to save you from your sin. There should be nothing holding you back from trusting in him. The blessing that comes from trusting in Jesus are nothing but good. Because Jesus says, much like Yahweh said in chapter 6, I am Yahweh, the one who saves. Jesus says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of your sins. I will forgive you. I will deliver you from slavery to your passions and lusts. I will free you from your sins. I will redeem you because the price of your sin has been paid in full on the cross. Your punishment has been paid in full. I will take you to be my son or daughter. I will make you my own. I will be your God and you will know that I am your God. We will have an intimate, eternal relationship, says Jesus. I will bring you into eternal life. You will have hope of resurrection after you physically die. And I will give heaven to you as a possession. You will be with me forever. And Jesus can say all this because he is Yahweh, the one who saves. So trust him today. And all of this can be yours by grace through faith. Because the foulest of people give Jesus the opportunity to display the majesty of his grace. If that's you, please see me afterwards. Now for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we are the people of God his children. And yet sometimes our circumstances can seem like quite a predicament, not at all what they should be, right? We suffer, we go through pain, we get bogged down and discouraged in our circumstances. Things sometimes get worse instead of better, much like the children of Israel. Evil seems to be winning. The devil's schemes seem to be making headway. God doesn't seem to be keeping his promises. And we are being obedient to God, but it seems to be leading to heartache instead of blessing. 
And we get disillusioned when things don't happen the way we want them to. We see people we love going through difficulty, pain, loss, stress, even death, and we can be quick to say, God, it's all your fault. Why have you done evil to this people? And what this passage encourages us with is this. As difficult as it may seem, as counterintuitive as it may seem, we need to take our eyes off our circumstances and put them on Yahweh, God Almighty, the I Am. Because this passage isn't about the suffering and pain of humans or the weakness and brokenness of leaders or the evil and oppression of the world or the fact that even we as God's people struggle to believe that God's ways are good. This passage is about the amazing nature of God Almighty, Yahweh the I Am, the one who assures us, his people who are discouraged when it seems that God's plan isn't working and that everything is falling apart around us. For those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And he is God Almighty who came to be one of us and who reminds us, his people, who may be suffering under opposition and struggling to believe that God has not forsaken us, that Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and are all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. And he is Yahweh, the one who assures us, God's people, that though we may, be, may have a broken spirit and feel that we are the object of harsh slavery, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 34. And Jesus, the one who is called faithful and true, who never leaves us or forsakes us, says this to us through his friend Peter, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That is his promise to us. The foulest of circumstances gives God opportunity to display the majesty of his grace. Therefore, O people of God, don't lose heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage, this raw and real passage, a real-life passage, where things didn't go according to what they thought they would go, the plan that they thought you had laid out, and yet you asked Israel and you asked Moses to trust. So God, we ask that you would give us strength to trust you. Like the father of the paralytic boy, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Give us confidence in your promises. God, may we, may we rest secure on the fact that you are Yahweh, always present, never failing, incredibly trustworthy, infinitely powerful, the one who will save and does redeem and will come back for us. And we have an eternity with you in glory to look forward to. We are so thankful for that. Thank you for saving us and for loving us and for sending Jesus to die for us. So whatever circumstance we're in, God, I pray that you would fill us with the hope of your calling. And may we be encouraged as we go from here. And may we share that hope and that encouragement with everyone we meet as we go out this week. And we pray this in the powerful and gracious name of Jesus. Amen.